0: Bullets, barbed wire, mines, artillery shells stretched out between the trenches of World War I, a long, bloody, muddy strait of almost certain death. This is no man's land. Against such lethal power wielded by both sides, advancing just a few yards seems like nothing short of a miracle going over the top of the trenches seemed more like suicide than an organized military operation. Breaking no man's land would be crucial to winning the war for either side. It turns out that the weapon the British would find to do this was the tank. Like the enemies of the great Hannibal, who 2000 years earlier used war elephants to terrify his enemies, the Germans must have been horrified at these armored chariots advancing unstoppably towards them, regardless of machine gun fire or barbed wire. From that moment, tanks became a vital part of every major operation and the exploits of these armored Goliaths would become legend. One story in particular highlights both the great advantages of armored warfare and the great dangers. It is a story of heroism dedication and sacrifice but above all it is a story of the human spirit in the face of seemingly impossible odds this is the story of one tank crew's fight to survive as they found themselves trapped in their vehicle in no man's land welcome to wars of the world 1917 was a critical year for the Allied war effort as a fresh wave of summer offenses in Belgium and France loomed closer. On the one hand, the United States had given up its neutrality and dispatched the American expeditionary force to join in the fight on the Western Front. However, weighted against this was the February Revolution in Russia which had seen the Tsar ousted from power and the country left in political limbo. There was also growing dissatisfaction among French ranks, leading to mutinies and refusals to return to the trenches, these being quietly hushed up by French authorities as to not alarm their allies. Finally... There was the resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare by the Kaiser's Navy, and they inflicted significant damage on supply lines from North America to Britain and Western Europe. In Belgium, Field Marshal Douglas Haig, who commanded the British Expeditionary Force, decided that the British Army should launch a major offensive against the Germans before outside influences affected their ability to do so. Since 1914, British and German troops had waged a bloody campaign, fighting for control of the Ypres Salient, now held by the Germans, which created a bulge in the front line westward. Haig was determined to knock the bulge back. Haig's plan called for a preliminary attack on the Messines Ridge against the southern German flank in order to force them to commit their reserves, which could then be destroyed in subsequent battles. This part of the offensive was carried out on June 7th, 1917, and proved a total success. Encouraged by this, Haig authorized an all-out offensive in an effort to smash the Germans out of the salient in one decisive blow. But amongst the British commanders, there was some apprehension over this plan. The Ypres salient comprised of large areas of marshland, which would likely turn to bog and swamps after the expected prolonged artillery bombardment to soften up the enemy. This would make any advance slow and difficult and would give the Germans time to reorganize and counterattack. Haig would not be dissuaded, however, and ordered the offensive move forward. When briefing the British Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, and his cabinet on the operation, he assured them that the German morale was so low and the troops so exhausted, they would collapse under the weight of an all-out attack. Lloyd George was initially hesitant, but Royal Navy Admiral John Jellicoe gave his support, stating that unless the British and Belgian armies could recapture Belgian ports used by German submarines to strangle British shipping, then the country would not be able to continue the war beyond 12 months. Haig promised to bleed Germany dry of manpower within six. Lloyd George reluctantly gave his blessing. However, on the opposite side of the front lines, the Germans had suspected an offensive was about to get underway and had successfully guessed Haig's intention to knock back the Ypres' salients. This was only confirmed by a two-week-long bombardment by British artillery, which gave the Germans ample warning that the offensive was coming. Four and a half million shells were fired onto German positions before the British attacked on July 31, 1917, initiating the Third Battle of Ypres, more commonly known as the Battle of Passchendaele. Just as predicted, the barrage had helped render the battlefield a wet, muddy, and now blood-soaked hellscape. Haig's intelligence chief, General John Charteris, expressed his frustration with Haig who had not listened to the prior warnings when he wrote the following. Every brook is swollen and the ground is a quagmire. If it were not that all the records of previous years had given us fair warning, it would seem as if Providence had declared against us. There have been many hellish moments in the history of human warfare, but Passchendaele may be counted among the absolute worst. This place was hell on earth and it is where our story is set. Donald Hickling Richardson was born in Nottingham in 1893, the son of Arthur Richardson, who, as well as being a grocer, was also an elected liberal Labour MP. Like many young men, Donald Richardson found himself caught up in the brutal and bloody fighting in Europe, as the continent was set ablaze in 1914. This, despite his father being a staunch opponent to the war, receiving a commission in 1915 as a lieutenant. Within a year, he had volunteered to transfer to the burgeoning number of Royal Tank Regiments that were forming. Eventually, the now Captain Richardson found himself as a section commander of F Battalion, using tank F-41 serial number 2329, as his personal mount. He and his men nicknamed the tank the Frey Bentos in reference to the popular tinned meat product his father sold in the family shop, something he likened to the experience of men riding in a tank. The Frey Bentos was a Mark IV tank incorporating many improvements over the earlier models. Being a so-called male variant, it was formidably armed with two six-pounder guns and two Lewis machine guns affixed to the side of the tank. The tanks of the Western Front required much larger crews to operate than the armored fighting vehicles of later conflicts. Typically, the Frey Bentos had a crew of eight men, namely, Second Lieutenant George Hill, Sergeant Misson and Gunners William Murray, Ernest Hayton, Frederick Arthurs, Percy Budd, James Binley, and Ernest Brady. With Richardson as well commanding the advance, it brought the crew up to nine. They came from various backgrounds, but they were united in forming the innards of the metal beast that was about to be unleashed upon the enemy. Their incredible story began on the morning of August 22nd, 1917 the Germans were holding positions on and around an elevated position on the typically military sounding Hill 35. Hill 35 offered the Germans a superb view of the surrounding area. And it was from here that a major counterattack had been organized against the British on July 31st. Denying its further use by the Germans was therefore a major objective for the British. At 445 hours, the Bentus and three other tanks began advancing towards their first objective, the Somme Farm on the southern flank of Hill 35, which the Germans had fortified. The tank attack was in response to several failed infantry assaults on the German position. Such was the defensive power retained there. Plowing through the muddy terrain at rarely more than three miles an hour, the German force stationed there had plenty of time to realize the game was now up as they saw four metal Goliaths advancing on them, impervious to their machine gun fire that had proven so deadly to the British infantry. After a spirited exchange of fire between the two sides, the Germans under pressure from the tank's six pounder guns retreated to their main defensive line where they prepared themselves to face the British armor. Continuing their advance, the crew of the Frey Bentos and three other tanks began taking very heavy fire from German positions, including a number of armor-piercing bullets the Germans had developed specifically to counter British tanks. Against these bullets, even the thicker armor of the Mark IV was no guarantee of protection, and the interiors of the tanks began to splinter and spark from high-powered impacts. Some of the men began taking minor injuries, but the tanks kept on charging at the German line. At around 545 hours, the gunners and Richardson aboard the Fray Bentos felt the tank move unnaturally. Lieutenant Hill, who had been driving, had been hit in the neck, but was still alive. Sergeant Misson later recounted what happened next. We got into a very deep, soft place, and we went in sideways. And just at that moment, Mr. Hill fell back off his seat hilt Captain Richardson got on the seats to relieve him, but he was foul of the controls and before the driver could do anything, she was right in and ditched. The Frey Buntus's crew were now trapped just yards from German positions, their tank unable to move. The Germans kept up the pressure on the British crew who were unable to use the tanks powerful weapons to fend them off because of the angle the tank was sitting. They therefore resorted to their personal weapons to return fire. Becoming ditched was always a possibility and the tanks were equipped with unditching beams which could be placed under the tracks to allow them to get moving. However, the only place they could be carried was on the roof. Despite the heavy fire the tanks were taking, Captain Richardson decided to leave the protection of the Bentos and attempt to recover the beams, but he was beaten back by the heavy enemy fire. After a short while, Sergeant Misson and Gunner Brady then attempted to retrieve them. Sergeant Misson explained what happened next. I got out of Wright's sponson door to put on one side of the unditching gear, but I heard bullets hitting the tank and saw some Bosch about 30 yards off firing at me. I got in again. Grady had got out of the other side to help me and they shot him and he fell under the side of the tank that was sinking. Arthur's said he was dead. We kept on firing and killed several of the Bosch close to the tank. We expected the infantry to come up any time. Following in the wake of the tanks were the eighth Seaford Highlanders and the seventh Cameron Highlanders. So they felt reassured that support would soon come, but it never did. The German defenses were just too strong. The infantry were beaten back as were their accompanying tanks, leaving the eight surviving crews stranded alone and many of them sporting injuries. Throughout the day, they fought off sporadic attempts by the Germans to kill them and capture their tank. German tank technology was at this time extremely unreliable, and so capturing British tanks and turning them against their former owners was a high priority. As if all of this were not stressful enough for the trapped men, they soon began to realize that some of the fire they were taking was coming from behind them. It seemed that the British, seeing the Germans amassing around the tank, had presumed the crew were dead and that it had been captured. Fearing the Germans may turn it against them, British snipers were now trying to pick the crew off inside as they tried to fight off the actual Germans, a truly cruel twist in the story. Lacking a radio with which he could contact British troops to tell them to stop firing at them, Richard knew that the only way they could stop their own troops from firing was for someone to leave the tank and attempt to make it back to British lines. The redoubtable Sergeant Misson volunteered to carry out this extraordinarily dangerous mission, where he would have to face the gauntlet of both British and German snipers as he crawled through no man's land. In his report, Sergeant Misson explained, "'Captain Richardson told me to go back "'and warn the infantry not to shoot us "'as we should sooner or later have to clear out of the tank. "'We were all getting stiff from wounds. "'I got out of the right sponsor door "'and crawled to the infantry. "'They were the Gordons. "'I stopped there for about an hour, "'expecting the others to come. I heard a few shots as if the Bosch were sniping at other people coming from the tank. I kept looking and then saw what I thought was two officers going back to my right rear. I thought they were Captain Richardson and Mr. Hill and went after them, but lost them in the broken ground and the infantry could tell me nothing of them. As it happens, Richardson had remained in the tank with the others and had placed white rags out of the hatches at the rear, desperate to inform British snipers there were friendly troops inside. As the day wore on, the temperature in the tank began to rise in the Belgian summer sun, often reaching some 30 degrees centigrade or 86 degrees Fahrenheit. Having water, rations and ammunition Richardson elected to hold the tank until British forces could launch another offensive and take the hill, or alternatively, until they were overrun and killed. With the evening setting in, there appeared to be no sign of reinforcements reaching them despite the heavy fighting going on all around their position. And as if to mock the men further, the temperature at night plummeted, leaving the tank men freezing within the metal confines of their stranded tank. Excluding the obvious physical danger, one can scarcely imagine the psychological hardship they were enduring as the first day ended with no clear hope in sight for rescue. Nevertheless, the British troops swore to fight on. Hunkered down in their stranded tank, the night air carried the sounds of battle far and wide for Richardson and his men to hear in the early hours of August 23rd. It was the source of both relief and trepidation. On the one hand, they knew there was still the chance of rescue, but on the other hand, the Germans were still holding their own against the British assaults. At around 130 hours, the men of the British Army's Black Watch launched an offensive against the German positions, but this failed and resulted in over 50 casualties and a lucky German shell demolishing their field headquarters, causing confusion and disarray. After a nervous night, the sun began creeping over the boggy and crater-filled landscape and the Germans who had become more emboldened started advancing towards the British lines and towards the stranded Frey Bentos. Now effectively manning a fixed pillbox, Richardson and his men put every weapon they had to good use to fight off the Germans who found this one stranded tank an almost impossible obstacle to overcome. Every assault they attempted was ferociously fought off by the stubborn British soldiers who knew that if they gave anything less than everything they had, they would fall. Captain Richardson recalled the immense pride he had in his men as they stood together, carrying out their duties regardless of various injuries they had received. But he also wondered how long they could hold out. Lieutenant Hill was in an especially poor condition, and this coupled with the finite amount of food, water, and ammunition meant they were operating with a ticking clock. After another torturously hot midday inside the tank, it felt like an eternity before the sun started to go down again and the battered tankmen were forced to face the prospect of another night in the ditched vehicle. Richardson admitted he had considered the possibility of retreating through the night, but elected to hold on a little longer in the hope of a successful British offensive taking the hill. The arrival of darkness brought a lull in the fighting but Richardson said he could sense there was something not right. Suddenly, the interior of the tank began to clang and thud with noises that he reckoned were enemy troops on the roof, and Richardson suspected that the Germans were changing tactics, probably looking to start fires and smoke them out. The crew of the tank burst into action, opening hatches to fire their pistols and rifles and manning their Lewis guns. During the desperate fight that followed, a German soldier threw a hand grenade into the tank, but incredibly, the British troops managed to scramble and throw it back outside, milliseconds before it detonated. The Germans soon began retreating, dragging their wounded behind them. The Bento's had fended off yet another assault, but it had been a close call. The Germans now took to peppering the stranded tank with armor-piercing rounds from their position ahead of the Bento's. The tankmen tried to find as much cover in the tank as they could, trying to put as much metal between themselves and the outer hull. But as their third day began, Richardson was forced to accept that things were getting desperate. The protection of the Bento's was being whittled away. The crew were exhausted, despite him allowing them to take shifts sleeping and supplies were worryingly low. To top up their water supplies, they drained the filthy water from the tank's radiator, taking enough sips to only quench their thirst. If anyone in the tank pondered the possibility of surrender to the Germans, they never admitted it. But in all probability, surrender was likely not an option. The ground around the Freibentos was now littered with the corpses of German troops they had killed and the German snipers and armor-piercing rifle operators seemed determined to kill every last one of them in revenge. After another day of sporadic combat turned into a comparatively quiet night, Richardson decided they had now more than carried out what duty had been expected of them and began issuing instructions on how they were to finally abandon the Frey Bentos. At around 2100 hours on August 24th, when the guns around them had largely fallen silent, one by one, the men opened the hatches of their tank and quietly and carefully began crawling across a quarter of a mile of no man's land, a distance that must have felt like an eternity, all the while wondering if a keen-eyed German sniper could see them moving in the darkness. Reaching the British lines, they were greeted by jubilant and astonished infantrymen, inspired by their grit and determination amidst the horrors of the battle they had been waging. The next day, German troops were observed examining the Bentos. Maybe they were checking to make sure the tank turned fortress was truly out of action. Maybe they were gathering intelligence or collecting war trophies, or maybe they just wanted to see the vehicle that had caused them such intolerable hardship for over 60 hours. The heroic stand made by Richardson and his men did not go unrecognized by the generals who bestowed upon each of them medals for their gallantry and dedication to duty. Both Richardson and Hill were awarded the Military Cross while Sergeant Misson and Gunner Murray received the Distinguished Conduct Medal. The remaining members of the crew received the Military Medal. This collection of medals made the crew of the Frey Bento's the most decorated tank crew of the war. Sadly, Gunner Ernest Brady's body was never found. it being lost to the battlefield of Passchendaele. He is, however, commemorated on the Tyne Cot Memorial, located near to where he fell, trying to receive the unditching beams when the tank first became stuck. Gunner Percy Budd would tragically not survive the war either, being killed in action on August 25th, 1918, aged just 22. Captain Richardson would return to action and was eventually promoted to Major he naturally gained another tank and emblazoned proudly on its hull was the moniker Bentos II. And there you have one of the infinite stories of the hell on Earth in Passchendaele. Please leave a comment down below with your own thoughts and reactions. And remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. Thank you for watching, and I'll see you next time.